It's nice to see the sausage get made. There it is. I mean, that's that's how it's done, I guess. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinema Faith Podcast for July 2022. I'm your host, Jonathan Butrin, and I'm joined today by a very special guest. You, of course, are used to hearing Tim Nelson's sexy voice on the other end of this mic, but Tim had a very packed July, just one thing after another for him, so he could not make it, but never fear, because I'm never going to leave you hanging, listeners. I went and I got the best guest a free podcast can buy. (laughs) On just about every show this year, you have heard one name repeated over and over again, and that name is Dan Baker. Well, guess what? Today, we are joined by none other than Dan Baker himself. He is here in the flesh. Dan Baker, welcome to the Cinema Faith Podcast. Oh, thanks, John. I'm super excited to finally be on. I've been waiting for, I guess, years. I know you, you have. So, you know, everyone I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate it. Absolutely. This is super exciting. So as many of you know, Dan is the co-creator of CinemaFaith.com. I first met him all the way back in... I mean, how long ago was it? You think like 12 years ago, I want to say? Something like that? It was 011. Yep. It's been a while. And we met at a church that uh, in Milwaukee that is no longer in existence. It was called Transformation City Church. But at the time, it was this thriving church that was very focused on incarnational living, on people moving kind of into the city and just being a good neighbor and spreading the love of Jesus by being a good neighbor. That's where we met. And I remember we were walking around a museum one day because I'd always had this idea for a website that I could kind of combine my love for movie reviews and movies in some sort of Christian way. And uh, we were at the Milwaukee Public Museum and I was like explaining it to him and he was like, you should do it. You should do it. And he, Dan is a website designer and he offered to get this thing up and running and he did. He got us up off the ground floor. He designed the whole website. And so I'm just really grateful for him because I couldn't have done any of this without him. And of course, Dan is good friends with both Tim and myself, which is why his name comes up all the time because, you know, Dan's just a great dude to be around, right? He's kind. He's open. He loves people. He (laughs) loves food and conversation. You cannot not love Dan Baker. He's the best. So, Dan. That's my intro from my perspective, but I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to everyone. So can you just give us a little snapshot into your life? What makes you tick? Who are you? Floor is yours. Sure. Thanks. Let me think. Well, I mean, I've been in Milwaukee for about 20 years now. So we moved here like right around the year 2000, right after Y2K, in fact. So it's a... Oh boy. Uh, well, yeah, we, we made it. We made it alive. We made it out alive. So that was good. Um, I've got a couple kids. My, my oldest is in college. And my youngest is uh, same age as your kid, John. So I mean, they're mm-hmm. they went to school together. In fact, so that was nice. They're uh, going into high school. So um, yeah, and like you said, I I do web design. I'm I'm uh, I'm in marketing, so I do pretty much everything: graphic design, web design, marketing strategy, and interesting things like that. I work for a Christian higher ed organization. So and yeah, I've always been super interested in kind of the intersection of Christianity with culture, pop culture, but especially art. You know, I love film. I'm not as much of a movie guy as you maybe and and Tim, but I mean, I'm more of a books guy and visual art, like, you know, painting and things like that. But I also do love film. I love just generally being a critic of everything. So, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to be able to you know, critically kind of take a look at conversations that are going on in the culture, uh, especially as it relates to art and film and things like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to add to the stew of cinema faith. Awesome. Well, yeah, Dan and I, one of our favorite things to do is get breakfast together and just talk about like everything. We usually spend two hours just covering theology, art, life, like everything. So this is kind of just like a recorded conversation like we have around the breakfast table, except I don't have a cinnamon roll the size of my head, which is very disappointing. That would be nice. Yeah. So before we get into the main topic of conversation today, I did want to give you an opportunity to defend yourself because I know there's been some very hurtful <laughs> accusations thrown your way, uh, specifically regarding a certain film from the 80s entitled Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Now, Tim and I took turns mocking you for this. Uh, we think that your love for this film is borderline irrational, but <laughs> we want to give you a chance to explain yourself, to sort of give our listeners an idea of why you think this movie deserves 
such esteem in your mind. So please take this opportunity. Go ahead. I, no, I think I can make a. I think I can make a pretty strong defense uh, for why this should be in the canon of '80s movies. But and also, look to be fair, I think all love is somewhat irrational, right? I mean, that's <laughs> fair. Yeah. Look, the thing is that Indiana Jones: The Temple of Doom. It, when it, when that movie came out, I was the exact age as Short Round. Right, so the short round character was a child sidekick of Indiana Jones, and uh, he was—I mean, he was basically fearless. You know, like you—if you imagine a kid in the kind of situations that he was in, he had agency. And when I saw that as a kid at that same age, I knew that that it confirmed to me that that's how I would be if I was Indiana Jones' sidekick. Right, I would be like a fearless, plucky kid who hopefully would know some martial arts and be able to fight my way out of situations, whatever. And so, I mean, that kind of solidified that film as <laughs> as like a huge part of my childhood. And I think we, you know, back in those days, we didn't even own a VCR, so we would have to go down to the liquor store. It was the only place in town that rented VCRs. The liquor and store. How about liquor that? Store. Not even Blockbuster. You're, you're going no, no, real there was no school. Blockbuster. Yeah, because I grew up in a farm town. And so we had we had a liquor store that rented VHS tapes and VCRs. And so we would go down, we would walk down there. My dad would rent a VCR and then we'd, we'd get to pick a couple tapes. And Temple of Doom was one of those. And we just rented, rented the crap out of it. We also had, again, this kind of dates me. Look, I'm Gen X. I'm 40. I'm turning 46 this year. So that I guess that puts puts it in some context. But um, we had a record player that we listened to records on. And back in the day, you could get like, you could just go to Walmart and buy like a record and it would be like a kid's story, right? And it would come with a, it would come with a booklet. You could page through the booklet and they had movie adaptations on vinyl. And so we had the, we had the vinyl adaptation of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom it was a record and it was just two-sided. So it was just side A, side B. They, they managed to compress the entire two-hour movie into a side, you know, side A, side B, you know, 33 and a third vinyl. And then it also came with a little booklet that you could page through. And it literally would be like, there'd be a narrator and then it would, sh- and it would have like a clip from the film with the audio from the film and the music from the film. And then it would be like, have like a chiming sound. And that's how you would know you're supposed to turn the page to the next page. <laughs> and nice. so we would watch it on VHS all the time. And then we would listen to the vinyl all the time. And that combined with short round, I mean, it was just, I don't know. I still will. I still will watch that one. I love that film. I got you. Now, what do you say to the accusations that the movie is a little bit racist? Now, Tim mentioned that Short Round, for instance, was originally supposed to be Indiana Jones's dog. And then there's the whole food scene, which people take offense to because they treat it like, oh, can you imagine this happening to you when, in fact, there are various cultures that eat food like that and it's totally normal? Yeah, no, I get it. And actually, I, I mean, I read that critique, I mean, probably wasn't even five years ago, the first time I read that critique. And honestly, it never crossed my mind that there was anything objectionable. I mean, look, the 80s was a weird time for for media. And I mean, there's, I don't think anything really escapes unscathed. There was a lot of, I guess, what we would call light racism in the 80s. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, every film, it was everything was played for laughs. Every culture was an alien culture unless it was, you know, white, middle class, you know, American. But yeah, I, I can totally see that. And I... You know, I sympathize with those who uh, will not watch it. I mean, I have come across that where people are like, no, I just won't watch it because it's too racist. I get it. And I appreciate that feeling. So for me, I mean, it is, it really is nostalgia and nostalgia tends to, uh, you know, color over a lot of negative aspects of things. So. Oh, 100%. I, you know what? And we don't know what you don't know at the time. And like, you know, it's like when we talked about it with, with Tim, it's like nostalgia is very powerful. Like I still listen to old albums that I listened to when I was a kid that like, I don't even like the lyrics anymore. I don't agree with what they're saying <laughs> because it's just so like, you know, whatever. But like, I still, it comforts me. It brings me back to like my childhood back to that time. So I get it. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a powerful thing. Well, good. Hey, you know what? There you go. So Temple of Doom, and I'll say in all honesty, I haven't seen the movie for 20 years. So um, if, for being such a harsh critic of something that I'm not even yeah. very familiar with after such a long time, no, you it's very should, uh, hypocritical you should probably on give my it a part. second look. Yeah, Absolutely. Second and look. maybe other people out there will give the movie a second look. Thank you. 
All right, Dan. Enough is enough, man. We have come here for a reason because we have seen a movie. We are ready to talk about it. And that movie is Thor Love and Thunder. What a title. (laughs) All right. Last month, Tim and I reviewed Top Gun Maverick because we felt bad for constantly picking movies that were esoteric and that no one wanted to see and so we thought hey in the honor of the summer movie tradition why don't we pick some mainstream flicks that maybe people have seen and i think a lot of people have seen thor at least i have talked to a lot of people that have seen it the box office has been pretty healthy so hopefully a lot of you out there have seen this and you can relate to what we're talking about that's the goal at least during the summertime so enjoy it while you can and of course thor is the latest iteration of the marvel cinematic universe abbreviated as MCU, we may say MCU. So if we do, it is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So Dan, before we get into the specifics of the movie itself, I want to start our conversation by kind of taking a step back. And I'd like to each talk about our experience with the MCU, with kind of the whole Marvel brand on film. Where are you at with that kind of in the past and specifically currently? I know you, one thing that's majorly different between you and me is that you're into the actual comic books. I'm not a comic book dude. So that gives you a little bit more, I think, perspective into things. So where are you at with the MCU? kind of going into this movie honestly i'm i'm growing a little weary of the whole mcu the more they extend the universe and i mean we all know that the x-men is is coming up at some point and fantastic four so i mean the universe is going to keep expanding and expanding and expanding uh, obviously they've got like 60 years of comics to go through and the nice thing about just reading the comics is that you can pick and choose you can just jump to one comic you can read a you know a, a couple stories out of it you can jump to the next one you don't really have to keep track of an overarching narrative. But with the movies, for whatever reason, the way they're building them is they all kind of fit together. It's like this giant puzzle. And at some point, you know, with the Disney Plus shows and the movies, I mean, this puzzle's going to, we're going to start losing pieces under the table and uh, it's going to be rough to try to reassemble everything. I like that analogy. I'm with you, man. I feel a little overwhelmed. Like, you know, it started off manageable, right? Like, again, I don't read the comics. So like, I just had the movies and I've shared this before on a previous podcast that I saw the first Iron Man when I was working in a movie theater and I knew right away, like, this is exciting. This is cool. Like, we're starting something big here because they're going to bring in, I knew they had plans to introduce all these characters. There was going to be all these crossovers and team ups and everything. And like, that was really cool. And it helped, of course, that Iron Man was legitimately a great movie. And I was able to keep up with it for a long time, like all the way up basically through Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Like I was fully caught up. I had seen every movie twice at least because I showed them to my kids. But once they expanded into TV, that's where, like you said, it really started getting overwhelming. It really started to feel like you're missing some pieces because it's just so hard when you have a TV show that's 10 to 12 episodes like – I don't know. I remember when WandaVision came out, I was already watching two other shows, so I didn't I didn't have time for it and I never got around to it. I, I haven't watched that. I haven't watched Loki and so oh, you're missing some key some right. key insights. Right, exactly. And go, so going into it, I just, going into this Thor specifically, I was like, I feel like out of the loop. The last movie I saw was the Spider-Man and I've missed all these shows. And it's to the point where you can no longer really catch up. Like, imagine showing your kid who's never seen anything Marvel, like, all right, we're going to catch up on Marvel before the next one. Now you're talking not only movies, but all these TV shows. And it's just to the point where it's starting to get a little too big to handle. So... I completely agree. But you've watched a lot of the shows. What What are your opinion of like the shows? Because I know you've seen Mar- uh, WandaVision and Loki, right? And all that? Yep. Yeah, I've seen all the shows now. We're actually just have finished up the last episode of Miss Marvel tonight. Okay. I mean, the shows are fine. Look, Disney has a formula, which is, you know, they purchase a property or maybe they dig one out of the vaults and then they just mine it for all it's worth. They extract everything that they can from it and uh, then they move on to the next thing. So, I mean, they're doing it with Star Wars right now. They're doing it with Marvel. I don't know. I mean, they've got a, they got a huge cash cow on their hands with this thing, and they're, they're not going to stop. Same with Star Wars. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of all the new Star Wars stuff either. Yeah. Did you watch Obi-Wan? I heard it's good. I, I did. Yeah. Okay. It was okay. There's okay. just a lot. There's just a lot. Again, it's just so much to kind of try to consume it and then, you know, do any of these stories, can any of these stories stand alone? Maybe. I mean, this Thor story, I think, can stand alone. But there's just the weight of this whole universe now on top of everything that you kind of have to 
keep in the back of your mind. Right. I did watch Moon Knight. That was the one Marvel show that I got into specifically for Ethan Hawke and Oscar Isaac because they're like probably two of my top 10 actors working today. And that was good. Yeah. Like, I really enjoyed that. It's a bonker show. Like, that, that is. show is just, I can't even describe it. I won't even try. But, like, you got Oscar Isaac playing two completely different characters with different accents. And Ethan Hawke is this crazy villain. It's good, though. I would, I would recommend it. Did you see that as well? I did. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, Oscar Isaac is actually a twin in real life. Oh, really? I did not know that. Wow. Cool. Yeah. His, and his twin was used as a body double in some of those scenes where he was like talking to himself. So well, that I'm, makes it I'm, a lot easier than the way yeah. that they do it normally, where you have to kind of stand in two different places. It's amazing the technology, though, even when they have like one actor that's a bit the, the, the way we've been able to basically incorporate twins with one actor is pretty incredible <laughs> because it's seamless nowadays. But that's yeah. that really helps to have an actual twin brother in real life. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a twin as well in real life, so I can, uh-huh. you know, so if you see me double on the screen, that's why. <laughs> yes. If we see you double on the screen, that is why. Perfect. My, honestly, like, so I love the Hulk. The Hulk is my favorite superhero. He's been my favorite since, since the Lou Ferrigno version of the show back in the eighties. So I, I'm just like, honestly, when I started watching these Marvel things, I was like, what are they going to do with the Hulk? Cause we had those couple of terrible, like standalone Hulks, Edward Norton and all that, right? Yeah. Like prior to when universal owned the rights to the Hulk. And I don't know if they still do. There's like a weird ownership disputes over, over all these characters. So I'm just waiting for them to do a good Hulk. I mean, I like, that's, that's one of the things I loved about Ragnarok. I thought it, it had a good Hulk, like subplot to it. Yeah. And Mark Ruffalo is good, but like, is, where's yeah. the good hulk movie right like we haven't had that yeah yeah so i'm holding out for that so i'll keep watching until they give me that i don't i don't think we're gonna get it but we'll see hey maybe you'll have a hulk tv show you can have 15 episodes of hulk goodness well i mean they're doing she hulk that's coming out this summer still maybe i think so i didn't even know about that see it's just it's overwhelming dan it's overwhelming all right well that leads us all in to thor love and thunder So I went into a little hesitantly. Like I said, I felt like I was missing some information. But as Dan pointed out, this one positive thing I will say about this film is that they do a good job of you don't feel like you're missing any pieces. They catch you up. You you can basically go into it without a lot of prior knowledge of things as long as you sort of are up to date through Infinity War. So that's good because I hadn't even seen Shang-Chi and all that. I didn't even see Doctor Strange. So yeah, I went into it a little hesitantly, but I didn't feel like I was missing anything. And I plopped into that theater, Dan, and I got my kids combo. Have you heard about the kids combo business? I know that you love the kids combo, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not paying $25 for a big tub of popcorn when you can get it for $6. You get your little taste of popcorn, you get your drink, and they give you a gummy snack. I, I'm, they don't care. I don't think they care. They know what I'm doing, and they don't care. Well, anyway, we went, we went, we went to on uh, discount tuesday so you get free popcorn on discount tuesday so. oh absolutely we've got a local chain here called marcus and on tuesday it's the greatest deal for you get, it's five dollar movies and that's any movie it could be new old 3d any kind of theater it's a really good deal i try to yeah. sync up on tuesdays as well did you go with your son yeah i brought i actually went with my son and my daughter yeah it was good we saw it on one of their like ultra screen type things it's got the seats that they go back and, yeah. uh, you know, you can order food from the theater. We didn't do that, but you can do it. I, right. I always, no matter what, I always going to sneak in food no matter what. So <laughs> it's, you know, yeah, I'm, no, me too. Me too. You have to, it's not a theater experience if you don't sneak something in. It's not like so. sneaky. They're like patting you down. I mean, you stuff M&Ms <laughs> in your pocket. What are they? It's fine. Right. No, they don't care. <laughs> all they all want right. you is there watching the movie. So exactly. Well, one bummer about my theater experience is that I finally saw the actual trailer for the new Avatar movie, and I know I have been over this so many times. Did they play it on yours as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. I'm not going to believe at this point. I know people are sick of me ranting about this, but like this movie (laughs) comes out in 2009. James Cameron's been working on it ever since. There's four sequels. Four sequels coming. The the next one is coming this at the end of this year. And look, all I'm saying is... I was not looking forward to it before, but after seeing that trailer, I'm looking forward to it even less. I cannot believe that the animation still doesn't look that great. I mean, how can you have been working on this, James Cameron, for 13 years and you still haven't got this right? I mean, like they're spending $250 per sequel And it still just doesn't look quite right, which was my main gripe when I saw the original back in the day. I I don't even think the story looks that good. So I am just I 
I'm flabbergasted that these movies are coming out and they do not look good to me. Do you have a positive take on Avatar? What's your take on this? Well, no, I don't. I and first of all, I call it Blue Avatar because okay. I want to differ. I want to differentiate between Avatar: The Last Airbender, the TV series, which is like the greatest children's cartoon series ever made. It's on Netflix. Uh, it was very good. Yeah. So yes, Blue Avatar. Do not want to see it. Unfortunately, I probably will go and see it because. I mean, I kind of like spectacle movies, you know, and that looks like a big spectacle. I will say this about the CGI, and I think that this Thor movie kind of also carries some of the same condemnations, from me at least, which is it looks like you've got a fully 100% CGI animated movie, and then someone just drops a human in, and they're like, hey, now, yeah, now you have to believe that he's part of the scene. Like they like they made this whole thing, and then okay, now it's time for the actor to come in and right. right. It feels like that, yeah, yeah. And then I then I always have to imagine the poor actor who's trying to act against what a bunch of ping pong balls on strings or something. <laughs> right. Nobody knows. Yeah, I hear you. All right, well, at least we're in agreement. I mean, look, maybe James Cameron knows something we don't. Maybe he's saving the best. For, you know, it's like sometimes they do that with comedies. They they don't put all the good jokes in the in the trailer right. and then you get to the movie and you're laughing your head off. So maybe we will eat our words when we watch yeah. the sequel and we'll be blown out of our seats. But I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, uh, one of the actors said that she cried when she saw the first cut. And I think it, wow. I think she was implying that it was that good. Yeah, yeah, not that it was terrible and she wasted her life. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, good. Let's get to Thor. Let's get to the actual reason we're here today. All right, Dan, it's time to lay my cards on the table. I didn't like this movie. I did <laughs> not like this movie. I'll try to explain why. But let, let, let's first start off with the directing element here. So yeah. one of the reasons I was super pumped to see this is Taika Waititi. He's one of my favorite directors working today. He's amazing. I mean, Jojo Rabbit is my favorite movie of 2019. It is so yeah, good. Great you film. like that yeah. as well, right? Love that movie. Yep. So good. It's just like, it's funny. It's sad. It covers every emotional spectrum that movies can cover, but it does it seamlessly. And it's so rewatchable. Yeah. If you have not seen Jojo Rabbit, please do yourself a favor and see that. But he's directed a ton of other things too. He started out, I mean, he didn't start out with this, but one of his, like when he really became notable was when he did the movie, What We Do in the Shadows, which has become a TV show as well that he's involved in. So that, so that was one of his huge projects. He's directed TV. He's did the Mandalorian, the la the season finale of the Mandalorian season one, which was like my favorite episode of that whole series like i love the like the stormtroopers talking at the beginning yeah. it's like, like that's the kind of stuff that you really want star wars to be it's like you know when you were a kid like that's what you were imagining it's like what do, what, what do the stormtroopers talk about when they're just have downtime <laughs> and like taika gets it and he showed us it so he's been involved in a ton of other stuff and he did thor ragnarok which was amazing i love that movie you as well i'm assuming yeah it was a great it was a great film i i appreciate taika's kind of I mean, he definitely, ha he has an aesthetic, he has a writing style and a directing style that you can kind of count on, you know? And I think, you know, the Dracula one, uh, what we do in the shadows is kind of, you know, it's kind of the, the prototype for all of his, of his um, popular films. Yeah, where it's kind of left of field and a little bit goofy, but at the same time bringing in some, some things that it still feels like it means something as well. That's kind of his brand, yeah. Right, it's got the pathos. It's got the bathos. It's got all that. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. So he's a great director. And so I was super excited about it. And up to this point, I mean, he's basically been hitting, you know, a thousand. And not this time, though. That's the problem. Like, I feel like from a directing standpoint, this is the first time that Taika's made a bad movie. But I, before I go into my whole rant, what, what did you think from a directing standpoint from Taika's? What did he give us here? Did you like it? Did you not go? I don't know. I mean, I, so there's a really great interview with him that Wired did back in May. I don't know, John, can we throw a link to it in the, uh, in the show notes? Perhaps. Uh, people, people on podcasts say that. So I'll, I'm just going to say that. We'll put a link in the show notes. And, right. <laughs> and it's, I think it's, it, it's very revealing because it, I mean, you, you get a sense of kind of the kind of person that he is. And he he's just, I mean, first of all, he's just all over the place, just constantly bouncing from thing to thing. I mean, this film is, is like that. It's like it's like a bunch of little stories kind of combined into one big story. I don't know. I mean, he also wrote it. So he, he was the writer-director. He likes to do improv, and I think that comes through 
with a lot of this, especially, I mean, the story was fine, but maybe it just wasn't as, as coherent as it could have been. I think he, yeah, I mean, he's like a very intuitive kind of director. I don't think he's a real technical director. And I think that that pays off really well. Like in Jojo Rabbit, I think it really paid off. Now he also, not only did he adapt that book, but he also directed it and starred in it. So, yeah, I mean, I guess Hitler. there's a whole nother, <laughs> yeah, gotta be a whole nother like layer there. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can quite put my finger on why, it, why it fell flat for me, but it just was not as, uh, maybe as vibrant a story as, as Ragnarok. That's interesting. That parallel between his real personality and kind of what the movie felt like. Cause I remember I read that article too, I think, or it was one in the New York times, but it was the same sort of deal where he was basically describing how many projects he has in the works. And he actually said at one point that if he took a step back and actually like, you know, thought about all the things he was involved in, he would have a panic attack like instantly, <laughs> which is so telling, but like, yeah, that's interesting. So, so it, the movie almost feels exactly like, like that where it's just bouncing from one thing to the next without a sort of like clear cohesion and you know i think for me one of the major problems is the tone i think the tone is mm. really off on this one and marvel has done a really good job over the years of interspersing humor with action with like a very seamless you know blend of comedy with serious with all all the notes that you want to hit in a movie you know like guardians of the galaxy is probably my favorite marvel movie the first one and you know you got that scene at the end right where like the 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 city is being attacked and all these people are are dying and everything and then you've got uh chris pratt saying you know dance off bro and it's like this weird goofy moment but it works because it's genuinely funny it like breaks this tension you felt these stakes you know you actually felt that the stakes were really high and then there's suddenly this out of left field joke and then they go right back to you know the actual drama that's unfolding and that whole sequence just is like a perfect blend but with this one i feel like so many of the jokes didn't land they felt juvenile kind of thrown in and then they tried to make you want to you know like believe that what was happening was important but i didn't feel like invested i didn't feel like the stakes were high enough and it just felt all over the place to me which was troubling do you feel the same i think yeah i mean that's a good point about kind of the tone and i think marvel does i think they they pick directors that are that have a certain kind of tone to them maybe not all the time but i think a lot of the times and i think Love them or love them or leave them. It kind of starts with Joss Whedon. You know, this this probably won't be the first time I mention uh, his work, but if you're familiar with his work in Buffy, like he he kind of carries that whole like mixture of humor and and kind of horror and but like then suddenly there's a, de- a deadly serious thing you have to think about, and so when Joss Whedon kind of took the Avengers in that direction, and then that pushed the MCU, I think, into that weird kind of comedic direction that I I don't know that it was headed there necessarily. And then, yeah, of course, James Gunn has that same sensibility. You know, Taika Waititi, I think, is that sensibility, but like turned up to 11. Mm-hmm. And it works a lot of times. But I think with this one, it, there was there was some heavy themes here that I think could have used uh, maybe a lighter touch. A uh, deeper and, touch, kind of, right? Like, yeah, a deeper yeah. touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and honestly, <laughs> I don't know if it, maybe my daughter or somebody said, you know, was this like the dumbest Thor of all? Because he just, it, it's like, you know, I mean, when you watch the original Thors, he takes himself very seriously and he's, you know, he's kind of just kind of struts around and throws his magic. Now he just kind of seems like a dummy. Yeah. And, yeah. And so I, it's a weird, it's a weird like character turn for him. Yeah. And it, almost like in a lot of ways, this movie felt like a parody of a marvel movie like there's that scene in the movie where they're doing like the the play version of the <laughs> thor events you know with with matt damon shows up and i love how matt damon just randomly shows up in these comedic roles it's hilarious and melissa mccarthy and stuff but this movie feels like that in a lot of ways like this goofy sort of going through the motions version of thor which is so strange but yeah and I think another huge problem is just you inherently have a problem with Thor the character like you're bringing up is that 
he's a god, right? Which is a very difficult thing. Like, in, you know, movie making 101, you need to have life or death stakes. And when you have a character as powerful as that, that can sort of zip around with his hammer and kill all the bad guys in five seconds. And then if he gets into a real pickle, he can just zoom out through the Bifrost and, you know, right. <laughs> call it a day. <laughs> then you really have to do something that makes it mean more. Like you, you have to raise the stakes. So I think in the past they've done that. They've had situations where his hammer isn't working or he's not connected to it or something or the bifrost is suddenly broken and they can't they're trapped on a planet with this i didn't feel ever that there were there was any moment where they couldn't just escape danger in five seconds if they absolutely needed to you know yep so i'm a big like source material guy and the source material for this one uh, is actually two separate runs of the thor comic okay and the writer is jason aaron and so the one was the gore the God Butcher storyline. And then the other one was the Mighty Thor, you know, Jane Foster storyline. And the same writer wrote both, but they're, they're two very distinct stories. And for this, for some, whatever reason, they decided to mash them together into one story for this one. The source material is like as dark as can be. It is the darkest, serious, like to the point where I was reading it and I almost felt like you almost feel like sick to your stomach. It's so serious right wow. because it's about which is the opposite of how this yes, movie feels yeah. that, and that's why and i mean i knew they weren't going to take it as dark as the source material but um you know when every line is accompanied by a smirk or a wink or a joke or you know i just kept waiting for someone to fart and so <laughs> right, I mean, that's exactly. just the kind of that's just the kind of movie that it felt like yeah i don't it just didn't work for me yep same well i mean a couple of things that worked from a directing standpoint, let's to, you know, veer off into a little bit of a positive direction. I will say I liked the opening scene. I thought that was really well executed with Christian Bale and sort of his with his daughter and then, you know, setting up his character and his battle against the gods. I I honestly like I thought it was a really effective opening scene that made me really expect that this I was in for a good ride and then, you know, was instantly disappointed. <laughs> the next <laughs> the next scene over but so that was good i thought that one battle scene that was kind of effective was the in the village like when the with the kids you know it was kind of that dark murky battle with the spider things and the kids mm. were kidnapped i thought that was yeah. a pretty effective battle scene and maybe i think it's honestly in that case just because there's actually was stakes for the first time like these kids were in peril and they were trying to rescue them and you actually felt like something mattered and that was nice so those were a couple of things that worked for me but like you said man yeah overall it's very disappointing all the battles felt very cartoonish yeah you know there's that old latin phrase do ex machina which is latin for the god in the machine which comes from greek theater where they would actually like hoist the gods on this machine to plug them into the greek play when the heroes were at like the utmost danger and i feel like that's how thor has become like thor has become the god in the machine which in this case i guess the machine would be the mcu and it's <laughs> yeah it's just not fun to watch that when there it just doesn't feel like anything matters and yeah. I mean, I guess if we kind of look at the context of Thor's journey and just I mean removing the fact that this is like, you know, a movie movie series based on some comic books. You know, he he lost all the people he cared about. So they kind of go through that a little bit in the film, right? But especially Loki, he saw Loki be, you know, be killed by Thanos. And then Thor himself tried to kill Thanos and he couldn't do it. And so like that was almost like his loss of faith moment, right? I mean, if you remember, I don't know if it was Endgame, whichever one where they they finally went in and Thor was just like, no, I'm going to just chop his head right off. And he just Mm -hmm. kills him. It was an Endgame the first time they killed Thanos. Right. Uh, (laughs) When Thanos is on his little farm and he's just kind of like a sad husk because he finally snapped and everything and the world was as it should be and thor just comes running in and just chops his head right off and that was it everyone and everyone starts yelling at him and why did you do that and now we can't reverse anything and so that's kind of the mood that thor is in and then he goes through endgame and now he's kind of so this is this is part of his journey where he's trying to find himself and it was just to me like that particular direction for this i don't know for me, that was the biggest hit to the whole thing. I mean, I loved the fact that they brought back Natalie Portman. Yeah. And I love the Jane Foster portion of the storyline where 
you know, she is also Thor. Who knows why or how, but she is. But the fact that it didn't really matter in the in the long run because the story was really just Thor finding himself. So everything else was just, you know, set dressing really to that one idea. Well, imagine, I mean, and that's such a good way to bring the character from everything that's happened. Like what if Thor had started out the movie, like actually despondent and like a broken human being. And I think they tried to do that, but it was sort of, it was so tongue in cheek, you know, it was like, you know, his relationship, even with Jane and everything that's happened before, you know, they treated it with just like, Oh, he's, he's, he's cheating on his hammer with this other weapon and right, their, right. their dating thing was just a bunch of jokes. So, I mean, like, but what if they had taken that seriously? What if he was just started out the movie with this very honest, like, broken hero, and then you throw in the God Butcher on top of it, then you have some weight behind everything that's happening. But it just, from minute one, like, they, you know, made pithy references to the fact that he was sad, but it just felt so, it didn't feel like they were taking it seriously enough. That would have been great. Yeah, even the fact that, like, we know how he felt about Loki, Right. I mean, I think that is a that is a relationship throughout these films that has been, I don't know, like a like an interesting kind of brother relationship. Absolutely. Um, It seemed real. I mean, it was a good relationship. It was you could tell that he was sad when Loki got killed. Mm -hmm. And then there was a there's that, of course, then just gets played for laughs in this film where it's revealed that Thor has, you know, a Loki tattoo on his uh, in the small of his back with a broken heart. Oh, the whole thing is just kind of played for laughs. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Now, as far as Jane is concerned, and let's, you know, we can move into the acting portion of this. I feel like I get it that conceptually it's fun to see them fighting side by side, but the way that they handled that transition was terrible. And again, this falls on Taika. Like, I just, they. <laughs> You know, they basically didn't even explain it. This was the hardest part is that they go from basically Natalie Portman is suffering from cancer, getting chemo treatments, and literally the next time we see her character in this movie, she is full on Thor fighting bad guys. They no explanation. And right. I mean, they, they, they try to like say some sort of thing like where she was like, Oh, I was just like looking at a hammer or the pieces of the hammer. And suddenly here I was, they don't, you know, I just feel like we, that's one area where we needed to see like what had happened. We need to feel her transformation from this cancer patient who's about to die to like getting power or whatever. And we just don't see it. They just skip right over that. And that made no sense to me. And I felt like it was really clumsily handled. Right. Well, even, you know, it showed her like doing a, doing a chemo treatment, right? And she like grabs the bag and she's like squeezing it because she just needs to get out of there. And then her wacky friend shows up with some hot Cheetos hot or whatever. Cheetos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole thing just, yeah, I mean, it just feels very like a, like the whole thing is just a big, huge joke. Now, obviously, like if you are familiar with the source material, you kind of like understand how she becomes Mighty Thor. You know, in this one, I guess how she became Mighty Thor was that Thor asked his hammer to protect her at one point. Like they, they have like a flashback scene where it shows him do that. Right. Is that like a new power he has? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, but it's there. Well, that goes back to the whole like do ex machina thing, right? Like he has all these new powers that we don't know about that seem very convenient in the moment. Who knew that Thor could transfer his powers temporarily to a bunch of children so that they could mow down creatures with stuffed animals. I didn't know that. That's, that's very convenient. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that is, that's crazy town. So yeah, that could have been handled better. And I feel bad for Natalie Portman because she's a terrific actress. Go watch Garden State if you need proof of that. She's, she has wait, wait, the now, talent. But what? Is Garden State like your, because uh, that was, that was like 20 years ago. Is that, is that her, <laughs> it was is a that very seminal movie for me. I think that's a very millennial sort of like, we've come to the end of our rope sort of sort of movie. I don't even know if it's, it, I mean, I don't think Zach Braff's a millennial, so I'm probably totally missing the generation on that, but it feels like a very, you've come to a crossroads in your life. And I feel like all of us have come to that point. So garden state does mean a lot to me in college. That, that was a very profound film. Okay. But I think it's Natalie Portman's best performance because like, she's just, I think she was nominated for best supporting actor. I could be wrong about that. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I mean, so wait, wasn't she nominated for black swan? Oh, yeah. She won an Oscar for Black Swan. I know okay. that for sure. So, I mean, shouldn't that be her best okay. role? Okay, fine. I, <laughs> obviously, I have a special soft spot in my heart for Garden State. I've mentioned it probably 20 times on this podcast. I love that movie. Yeah. Fine. You're right. Black Swan was an incredible performance. Yes. 
accurate. But I feel bad for her because she seems to get dragged into these terrible situations, right? I mean, think about the Star Wars prequels and then this, where she's just, it's not her fault. She just has to, like, do and say these things that are ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, part of you wants to be like, maybe she should choose better roles, but how are you going to turn down, you know, George Lucas coming back with the biggest Star Wars films ever at the time? How are you going to turn down working with Taika Waititi? But she just keeps being let down by terrible material. So, I mean, I think... You're right. She is a good actor. That I think is is undoubtable. I think she had some good stuff to work with in this. I mean, look, you're suffering from cancer and now you get a reprieve by becoming a superhero, but it's only temporary and you know that it's only temporary. So, I mean, I think that like the building blocks were there. Conceptually, again, right. Yeah. But I mean, her character only existed so that Thor could grow. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, this, my... <laughs> My daughter loves to talk about the Bechdel test. And if you know what the Bechdel test is, that's the, that's, that is a test in, in a film or a TV show where the female characters, basically, do they pass this test or not? And it's kind of a, a test for, for feminism in film. And one of the categories within the Bechdel test is, is there more than one female character? Do they talk to each other ever? And when they talk to each other, do they ever talk about anything except for the male the main male character. Mm. And I think this is the perfect example. I mean, I think we all would love to watch a movie with Valkyrie and, you know, the, and Jane as the mighty Thor doing like a, a buddy team up and going off and defeating something. That would be awesome. Sure. Instead, we have these two like powerful women who are superheroes in their own right. And all they do is talk about Thor the entire movie. Now I get that it's his movie, but you know, these women only exist for Thor. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, to me that it was a waste, it was a waste of, of talent. It was a waste of story to kind of just, you know, throw everything at Thor and make sure that he gets his growth period and everyone else is kind of exists for his growth. Yeah. hundred percent. And even Tessa Thompson, you're right. Like I think she spends a lot of time talking about relationship problems and it's all based on men and not anything in themselves, which is what it should have been. Yeah. That's a good test. I did not know about that. We'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, stop it. (laughs) There's no link. (laughs) Well, as far as a positive note in the acting, I think, you know, hands down, the best ingredient in this film and the best acting performance of this film is, of course, Christian Bale. I mean, Christian Bale, you know, you know that he's always going to bring it and he even is so talented he can rise above (laughs) terrible writing, terrible directing, and somehow still come out of this thing looking great. And he does. And I think his character as the God Butcher is great. Like legitimately, like it was the highlight for me of 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 an otherwise terrible film. What did you think of his acting in this and you have experience because you like you said read the actual god butcher comic how faithful is is that to this i mean there's there is definitely a lot of similarities in his character you know the how spoilery are we going to get here well just, you could announce a little spoiler alert if you want to just go for it for a second all right well we'll <laughs> don't you always spoil everything i mean i feel like that's that's yeah <laughs> that's kind of a characteristic I feel like we of this do. podcast like, i feel like people expect it yeah. like you should know by now that if you need to kind of have seen the movie going into this right but, yeah so i would say that a spoiler is ahead in the comic he does not have a redemptive arc so the character is definitely much more kind of evil in the movie you know he's he's kind of got this i guess he's got a good heart right i mean he suffered he he went through kind of a, a religious deconstruction but the thing that was kind of, I think, emphasized in the film was that he was being corrupted from out from the outside by this sword that he found, right? So, I mean, I think that's another kind of, maybe it's like a mini theme within a lot of these Marvel movies that there are these objects that are corrupting to the, to the characters, right? So, I mean, we see that in um, the Scarlet Witch, the WandaVision series, and the, um, the one that you didn't see with Doctor Strange. <laughs> You know, she's being corrupted by the Darkhold, which is this magical book. And so you have these like corruptive influences that are that that as long as the characters are using these things, they're being corrupted by them at the same time. And if they could just lose those things, then the corruption would fade and they would be kind of good and pure from within. So I think, you know, he he gets that opportunity. I love the fact that he almost got to use his real accent throughout this film. Uh, yeah, and I right. honestly don't think there's been another movie. Maybe I'm wrong, but 
I don't think there's been another film where he actually has his real accent. No, I don't think so. I mean, there's the Prestige, which is a British accent, but it's but he's but it's more of a Welsh accent is his original one, right? Yeah, he's I mean, he almost sounds like almost like Cockney accent, mm-hmm. like his real accent. He sounds like he's about ready to come and sweep your chimney. So right. no, I thought he was great in it. I loved his costume. I loved like the makeup and everything. You know, the fact that he was kind of he wasn't like this jacked Thanos style character. Mm-hmm. Like he you could tell he was a character with some physical weakness. I mean, he's very almost like not quite emaciated. Uh, I mean, we've seen Christian Bale emaciated before in The Machinist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, and that's the kind of dedication that he always brings to his roles. I mean, like, yeah, if you have any doubt about uh, Christian Bale's commitment to a character, just Google The Machinist and watch him and see him, an image of him as pure skin and bones, and then Google American Hustle and see him with a full-on morbidly obese you know physique and uh, the side by side of that is just stunning and that's not you know costumes or uh, makeup that's literally him yeah. doing that to his body which is of course terribly unhealthy but well then he did batman right after the machinist i think and so i mean that's he had right. to put on like 60 pounds of muscle to play batman crazy it's ridiculous i mean the guy is yeah the guy is dedicated i think he did a great job i i think he was a great villain you know i mean again there was some weirdness with his character. He wasn't funny at all, which I appreciated. You know? <laughs> the one thing that isn't the, the one character not cracking jokes every moment. Yeah, for sure. Right. One other actor I kind of liked in this, I'll be honest, is Russell Crowe as Scuzzy Zeus. I was yeah. digging it, man. Like, <laughs> it's been a minute since I've seen Russell Crowe in anything. I remember when he was like the biggest movie star ever with Gladiator and he was coming out with, you know, a new movie every month. But like, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen him in something, but I thought he was good in this. Like, his accent and his sort of just like, you know, talking about orgies and like, I think his character worked. It was funny. It's yeah. like, not, not like funny in a juvenile sort of like, you know, way that just drops dead, but like, he was actually a funny character that made me laugh. Yeah, I think that was a great, I think he was a great addition to the whole universe. I think that was his real physique. So, you know, I mean, he's not exactly the gladiator of old. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> right. But again, though, even with his character, it sort of undermines the stakes of the movie, right? Because, like, we're supposed to sort of care about the fact that Christian Bale is wants to kill all the gods, but then every god depicted in this film is just like a, a scuzzy pervert, which doesn't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't make you really care about the fact that they might all die, except for Thor. But we know Thor's not going to die because he's just going to zip on out of there, you know, at the slightest right. height of danger. So, yeah, again, it's just that, I mean, I keep coming back to stakes, but I mean, you know, one thing they drill in your head over and over again when you're in screenwriting classes is like, you know, every scene, you better be raising the roof with those stakes or people are just not going to care. And I, yeah, yeah, and that's why, you know, you can have the greatest action sequences in the world in this movie, spectacle beyond spectacle and be yawning because you don't care about anything that's happening. What did you think about the goats? The screaming goats. Hated the goats. I mean, (laughs) ugh. Maybe once that would have worked, but over and over again, so annoying. They just beat everything to death in this film. You know, the same thing with Thor's, like, hammer is his girlfriend analogy. That was funny the first time, and then, the you know, by the the fourth time, it's not. And, yeah, I don't know. Did you like the ghosts? Were you a fan? Well, I... I mean, I appreciated that they were trying to integrate the goats, right? Because that's that's part of Norse mythology. There are these goats that draw Thor's chariot into war in oh. Norse mythology. So, I mean, that I did not know that. You know, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of weird stuff in Norse mythology. But yeah, those goats are in there. And I mean, the fact that they're just kind of a huge joke in this. Like you say, the first couple times it was funny, right? I mean, I know there are goats that scream in real life. Uh-huh. There's also those goats that faint. Have you ever seen those? Uh, oh no, like I've a never seen that video with the the fainting goats. Yeah, they basically like get all rigid and fall over when when they're scared. Well, we'll have to put a link in the show notes. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, we could do. <laughs> yeah, it was a little much. And, and again, there's there are just these CGI constructions, which was pretty obvious. I mean, I thought that the scene, there was a scene in the beginning where the goats were in the ship with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and they're all trying to kind of wrangle the goats. Oh, yeah, and right. They were, and they were all, like, talking about it and having a, I mean, that I thought was really funny. That they was nice. Good, That's like, effective. Yeah, for sure. It had, like, a good group dynamic, and these things kind of, you could see they were just, like, a wacky thing. It would have been great for them to have been like, all right, now we're going to let the goats off on this goat planet over yeah. here. <laughs> 
Now let's continue the adventure. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Initially it was funny because they were like, and then someone made a reference to eating them and they were all offended. Like right. that works. That's great. Right. But then, yeah, let's dump them off. And you know, instead Taika has them screaming about five more times throughout the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, Dan, look, let's just bring this thing to a close because it's depressing and talking about a bad movie just bums everyone out. So I think it's time to sort of wrap this up. What are some themes that stood out for you? Did you have, did you see any truth worth exploring in Thor? Well, (laughs) I mean, so yes. I mean, I think that the themes, yes, they were played for laughs, but the one theme I thought was important was this kind of idea of like, what are the gods for? Right. And so we had Gore at the beginning where he was praying constantly for the deliverance of himself and his daughter. And, you know, the gods seemingly ignored them and his daughter died a horrible death in his arms. But then he ends up being able to meet this god that he'd been praying to. And this was this is the thing that sends him on his mission to kill all gods, because that god turns out to be just, you know, basically a, a worser version of of me, right? And mm-hmm. he's, he's just, yeah, he's like a terrible guy. He literally says to, to him, you know, there is no eternal reward for you. Once you're dead, you're dead. Oof. And so then, you know, Gore is just kind of left in shock. And this God is, you know, he's just kind of a jerk with an ego. And, and we've, we've been introduced to gods like this in the Marvel universe. Like what's his face? I mean, we, it, it, they have a weird pantheon in the Marvel universe, but there's like the uh, the Celestials and the Eternals. If you've seen the movie The Eternals, that's the only one I haven't seen. I have not so seen I, Yeah, I mean, but we've been introduced to Ego, which was Peter's dad from Guardians 2. Right, yep. Uh, Kurt Russell, yep. Kurt Russell. And so he's kind of godlike. He's almost like a demagogue in the, in the Marvel Universe. But the way he is, which is basically like, I'm going to remake everything in my image Thanos, of course, is another one of these like demigod type characters. So we have like this picture of what gods are like in the Marvel universe. And eh, most of them are just jerks. And even, you know, Thor and Loki and Odin or in Thor Ragnarok, we kind of hear a little bit more about Odin and the kind of God he is. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, they had the secret sister, Hela, (laughs) that they didn't even know about. And all she remembered was she and Odin destroying all these planets and slaughtering all these people in war. And, you know, so, I mean, we have this kind of picture of the gods and, and the theology kind of, of at least this part of it is that, you know, the gods are pointless. They're not going to help you. You're on your own. If they do exist, they're horrible because there's pain and suffering that doesn't get addressed in the world. And so, you know, what are we going to do about it? It's kind of the opening gambit from, you know, from this story. Yeah, that struck me too. I mean, I gotta tell you, Dan, I, I have a little bit of a secret fear. I think I've shared it with you before. I, you know, I grew up in a kind of fundamentalist household as I've shared. And I, you know, it was definitely a theology that was built around God being a little bit scary, especially if you are not a believer, especially if you are not one of the ones that he chose before time began, if you are into the Calvinism as I was back then. And so, there's this kind of idea that if that's you, that you are in for a very scary afterlife when you get there. And, you know, I mean, eternal conscious torment, as they say, that is, uh, Dan, that's suffering forever. That is yeah. <laughs> pain forever. And so, you know, and then you have even things like Jonathan Edwards, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God that I grew up revering and was told was like, you know, basically a picture of how bad this was going to get. And, you know, Jonathan Edwards says, this is a direct quote in his manifesto, sinners in the hands of an angry God, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. So that's what yeah. I grew up with, kind of like this scary God, unless you believed in him. And so I've eventually, obviously, come out of that, and I believe in a God of love. I believe in the God that has love for everybody, all of creation and all human beings. And, you know, in the same way that I have compassion for my kids, even when they're being terrible human beings, I think God has compassion for all of us, including the worst of us. But having said all that, You know, I do still have a little bit of a secret fear because like you can 
have all the faith in the world, but when you are faced to that point where you are going to die, you are going to a place no living person has ever been and no living person has ever come back to tell the tale. And so there is that fear that you're going to get there, that I'm going to get there and I'm going to expect, you know, melting into the arms of Jesus. And and (laughs) instead, I'm going to get this scary God who starts throwing things at my head, like in the opening scene of this movie with with, uh, Christian Bale's character, and that would be terrible. And uh, you know, and like like I said, it's I don't believe that. I you know, there's 99.9 percent of me that believes in this in this God of love that the Bible you know says God is love. But what if? What if Dan? We're yeah. wrong. What if we just got it completely wrong? And I know we've talked about that before, but I mean, do you ever have that? You know, just one point one percent fear in the back of your head. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, honestly, probably not. But I mean, it's actually less of a a 0.1% fear. For me, it's like a 0.1% like, eh, almost like apathy might be a good word for it. Like if I'm wrong, okay, well, then I'm wrong. I mean, there's nothing I can do about it at that point. And if you watch uh, the latest Norm MacDonald special on Netflix, it's like the last thing he recorded on Zoom, like before he died. I heard about he that. Bit, That's crazy. Yeah. He has a, yeah, he has a bit in there where he's talking about his faith. He's talking about when he, you know, what, what happens when he dies and he shows up and it's not Jesus. And his, his reaction is just, I mean, it's, it's like this pitch perfect, like Norm MacDonald delivery where he just kind of looks up and he's like, I thought it was the other guy. And he just kind of shrugs. He just kind of shrugs. You know, yeah. like I feel like, you know, I feel like that's kind of where I'm at sometimes. You know, whoever, whatever it ends up being, if I'm wrong, yeah, okay. I mean, I thought that in the film, at least, like, so I mean, this, we do have this God saying to, to the character, there's no eternal reward, right? Once you die, you die. But then, spoilers ahead, in the end, uh, if you wait all through the credits, an extra two hours to the end, uh, you can get an extra bit, uh, 10 seconds of, of story where one of the characters does find that there is life after death. There, is, right. a, Valhalla, there is a reward. Right? Yeah, there is a reward at the end. Valhalla is somehow something different from these other things that we've, that we've been introduced to. And like a character that we know is dead from previous movies is there welcoming this character into Valhalla. And so, you know, that's a pretty radical shift. The same way that I thought that it was kind of a radical shift from like this character who hates all the gods because they didn't answer his prayer. By the end, when he comes face to face with an, with yet another god, he does get a chance to pray and his prayer does get answered. Hmm. So it's kind of a weird, like the beginning tells us one story about this universe. So there's like one set of theologies about the Marvel universe. But then by the end, all those are kind of thrown out. And now we have a new set of theologies, which is, oh, there is like this ultimate God and this ultimate God will answer your prayer or your one wish or however you want to say it. Yep. And also there is life after death. And so everything's fine. So it's just a, it, you know, again, like you talk about low stakes. I mean, there's not even any eternal stakes that we that we have to think about. <laughs> Because it turns out everything's uh, great. Everything's just exactly what you hoped. Well, no, that's a great point, though. And I think it's kind of redemptive. I mean, when, if you think about it in that way of like, you know, the fear that we just talked about, and then we see Christian Bale's character get there and is told point blank that there, you know, there's nothing for you after death. And then I, I honestly, I didn't even think about that because I, I stayed to the credits as I always do with Marvel movies. And I thought it was just kind of a, like a pointless sort of throwaway sort of thing. But if you think back to the to that theme, to the one character that you actually care about christian bale's character that's actually kind of a redemptive moment it's a, it's the counter argument to that it's saying that hey you know what that god was wrong and there is something waiting for you and that something is good and that something clearly is rooted in beauty and love and i like that I, great point i didn't even think about that yeah i thought it was interesting the the scene where where they all go to meet the gods so like zeus is there and he's kind of like the presiding god over all the gods right and then we see like all these gods from all these other cultures are there so i mean i think one of the aztec gods quetzalcoatl was there like you know the big spiraling like serpent thing that was in there i'll take your word for i did not i don't remember that but yeah yeah he he was there and then there was a (laughs) bunch and there was a bunch of other gods that were kind of thrown in the mix Including a lot of kind of funny made up ones. There's like one is like the god of dumplings. And it was just a big dumpling on a plate. 
but then like within the MCU, there's all these other gods. So, I mean, you mentioned Moon Knight, right? In Moon Knight, the whole plot of that is the Egyptian gods are real and they don't really do much, but they, they have these human avatars that they kind of give powers to, to like do their will on earth. Right. Yep. So, I mean, you have all these Egyptian gods that you're introduced to. I mean, Miss Marvel, honestly, like the whole, there's this huge plot line of Miss Marvel and she's, she's a Muslim. So, I mean, they go to a mosque. It's like a huge part of the storyline. It's a huge part of the character. So, I mean, somehow the Muslim religion is like real within the MCU. You know, she's part jinn, at least it's the kind of what they talk about. I don't know. I don't know how true that that is in the ongoing storyline. Hmm. That's interesting. They, they, that by just by making her a Muslim character, they have sort of canonized a version of faith. Yeah, that is genuine. Right. Yeah. I mean, Daredevil is a Catholic. Like in the Netflix series, his Catholicism plays like a huge part in it. And yep. I mean, in the comics, it plays a huge part in it as well. So, I mean, you do have all these like, you know, there's a lot of references to religion. And obviously, like the whole idea of superheroes is very much like almost a religious idea, right? It's like, what if I could be better than just human, right? Mm-hmm. If I could be something more and I could I could do good in the world, beyond what I can do now, if I had some power to allow me to do that. Um, so it is a, it is kind of a religious system in and of itself, like the whole superheroes, supervillains and everything else. It, I think about like the whole cosmic aspect of Christianity where there's this great war in heaven, right? I mean, you have God and you have God going to war against the powers, the principalities and powers and, you know, Jesus ultimately defeating those. So, I mean, there's this, this cosmic kind of war element to Christianity that is kind of throughout scripture, kind of from beginning to end that kind of plays into this almost like adventure story thing. Right. You think about like Joseph Campbell and his whole like hero's journey. And that I think plays into our need for religion and, and for faith in some powers beyond our own powers. So I think there are a lot of like heavy themes in this film, but again, Played for laughs. Doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't work. Doesn't land. It doesn't do it doesn't do its thing. Yeah, no, but that's a good point. It's like superhero movies at their best. That's what they remind us of. They feel so true. And I think like you said, it's 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 remembering that we need something beyond ourselves, beyond just our our humanity, that there is a hope. That's why I'm a Christian. It's there's a hope that there is a power greater in myself that will defeat all evil, all sadness, all suffering, and that one day, by his power, we will be set free from everything that binds us and, and keeps us in chains and in this life and beyond. So, I mean, that yeah, that's what I think, why I think we're drawn to superhero movies and at, at their best which this is not one of them that's why they work so well so it's a good reminder yeah yeah all right dan well what are your final thoughts on thor love and thunder and your letter grade go for it all right final thoughts i think that it's fine it's okay to watch because i think that it still kind of fills in some gaps i i'm sure it looked like it was setting up a lot of things for the future of marvel I, there's a lot not to like, but I do think that if you if you like superhero stories, if you like humor especially, if you like you know Taika Waititi's kind of his whole gimmick with all of his jokey stuff, this is like that times ten. So you know if you're if you're in for like a light hearted, funny superhero story, then yeah, I think that's I think it's fine for that. I give it a C honestly. And maybe that's harsh now that I, now that we've gone through this whole thing, it, it's not harsh. It feels a little harsh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I give it, I'm going to give it a C I'll say that it's fine, but honestly, you should probably go read the comic that this is based on the both series, because I think that those are dealing with the themes in a much more kind of mature way and a, and a much heavier way. So I think that that's worth it. Now I'm probably not going to watch it again. Honestly, I've, I've watched almost all of them more than once, but this one, I think I'm going to watch it again. I'm right there with you. I think like, yeah, of all the Marvel movies, I can't think of one that I wouldn't want to see again that I wouldn't, you know, get a little bit excited to show one of my kids. I have no desire to see this movie again. I just never want to, you know, I, I cannot hear those screaming 
goats one more time, Dan. It will hurt my soul. <laughs> no, but I'm with you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've already said, you know, the, the main reasons I don't like the movie. I think the tone's all over the place. The action scenes are just boring. And uh, I think Christian Bale, you know, is the only spark in this movie that almost makes it worth watching. I'm not going to say that he does make it worth watching because I don't think he does. Even he can't pull that off. But I do think that he is kind of the one thread that kept me at least somewhat engaged from giving this thing a total F. But just to compare and contrast a movie like what we reviewed last month with Top Gun Maverick, I mean, there's just such a difference in you have two spectacle movies, summer blockbuster movies, Exhibit A and B, and you know, there's just no comparison. Top Gun is perfectly paced. You're on the edge of your seat. The stakes couldn't be higher. You couldn't be more invested in this mission that they're trying to accomplish. But this movie, it's like... There's so much going on all the time. But like I said, I was yawning through three-fourths of it. And part of me feels bad about that because it's like, you know, speaking of Russell Crowe in Gladiator, it's like, are you not entertained, right? <laughs> 20 years ago, this movie would have blown people's minds. But like we've seen it all before. And, you know, without without that clear stakes, without the clear pacing and the direction, then it just becomes this big, boring spectacle of nonsense. And yeah, it was not a fan. I'm giving Love and Thunder a C plus. So I'm slightly oh, more okay. optimistic than you are straight up C. All right. C plus. Nice. And that's solely because of Christian Bale. Uh, I think he's the only thing, you know, only thing worth watching here. But, um, you know, I will say, speaking of letter grades, I hated this movie so much and it made me actually retroactively think higher of Top Gun Maverick. So I'm going to, just for the record, because I know people are taking notes here, I'm going to retroactively bump my letter grade up from a B plus to an A minus for Top Gun Maverick. You heard wow. it here. My official grade for Top Gun Maverick is an A minus because it just reminded me watching this Ugh, spectacle is how hard it is to make a movie with such you know big budget high stakes that actually feels like you know in, that you're engaged with from start to finish so well done top gun maverick a minus tim was right by the way it does belong in the a range i'm sorry tim you're not here personally but yeah oh that's good all right well there you have it the movie is thor love and thunder it is playing in a theater near you and you know hey maybe you don't want to take our word for it maybe you want to see this for yourself and maybe you'll love it and you'll tell us all the reasons why we have gotten it wrong and if that's the case please write into us at podcast at cinemafaith.com and let us know let us know what we're missing podcast at cinemafaith.com we'll read your comments on the air and you know we're, we're not afraid to be wrong maybe we need to give this a second look or, you know, save yourself $100 with your family of five and go mini golfing. It's really your choice. Ooh. But uh, you know where we stand, and we've done our best. So, Dan, hey, thanks for being here, man. I like really appreciate you filling in for Tim this month. Yeah, not a problem. I really enjoyed it. Good. And I mean, it's kind of late notice, and you're you totally game. And honestly, I think we might want to do it again because... We all love Tim. Everyone loves Tim, but he's a busy guy, and there will be months. I can foresee sometime in the future there will be another month where he just has to bow out, and I would love to have you be our sort of uh, stand-in for him if you're willing. Sure, yeah. Backup uh, backup guy is fine. <laughs> yes. I've been that many times in my life, so... Awesome. Well, hey, for all you Tim Nelson fans out there, he did assure me that he will be back next month, and so <laughs> we will hopefully be be back in action with our with our regular thing here. I don't know what we're going to be reviewing. Maybe Nope, Jordan Peele's new movie, but there's no reviews yet, and I, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to see it if if the uh, reviews come in unkind, but but maybe we will find something, and we will be back. But uh, yeah, until then, keep the faith, my friends. We will see you next time.